crazy. No stopping of this warfare. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. We're breathing in the same air. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Don't tell me that you don't care. We haven't turned into the top 40 station. It's still your public radio station. Hi, I'm Tom Williams. You're listening to Access Utah. We're breathing the same air. There's a lot of irony there. Uh, we're all having potentially the same problem, but uh, a lot of struggles on how to get to a solution. We're going to talk about how do we get to a solution on the air pollution problem on Access Utah today. Just an illustration of the ongoing battle. This headline from the Salt Lake Tribune today, Data Battles, Muddy Solutions for Cleaning Utah's Air. There's a uh, fight that's broken out between the state and some activists on uh, just who is the major culprit for Utah's bad air. And we're in the New York Times as a state, not in a good way. Here's the headline, seen as nature lover's paradise, Utah struggles with air quality. There's an irony there, of course. There's a clean air rally planned for this afternoon in Logan. It's ahead of an expected decision on emissions testing from the Cache County Council. That rally begins at 4.30 in the afternoon outside the Cache County Historic Courthouse. Then at 5 o'clock, the group is urging you to fill the county council chambers and demand a yes vote on vehicle emissions. Today, we're going to talk about some of these problems, but we're going to focus on inspiration and lessons from a community which solved its seemingly intractable environmental problem. And our guests will include Rod Blattman, a producer of Saving the Bay. That's a documentary film you may have seen on PBS, which tells the story of three women who ignited a movement which led to the cleanup of San Francisco Bay. We welcome in Mr. Blattman. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We appreciate you joining us today from California. Um, And uh, we also bring in Sharice Udell, founder of Utah Moms for Clean Air. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. And in studio with us is Executive Director of the Bear River Watershed Council, Mark Blazer, who joins us as well. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And uh, you, you focus on watershed, but you're concerned about the environment as a whole, so that's why we have you in here. Correct. Yep. I'm here as, a, as just a concerned citizen today. And I'm interested about uh, the whole uh, strain of thought uh, continue, uh, concerning uh, behavior modification, which uh, I think... We all have to do to solve this problem. That's one of these, these solutions we're going to have in the second half with us. Amy Odom, Associate Professor of Psychology at Utah State uh, University. Let me start with Sharice Udell. Um, I think you're spearheading this rally here in, in northern Utah. What, uh, tell us a bit about what you're trying to accomplish. Well, actually, Utah Moms for Clean Air is supporting the citizens of Logan. So actually, I would say the citizens of Logan, um, Mark specifically, um, they are spearheading the uh, the rally today, and we are um, giving them support. Um, this was their own idea, and um, they are very enthusiastic about cleaning up the air out there. And so, um, we want to lend our experience and expertise on um, on holding rallies and getting government officials to respond. And Mark, you reached out to Sharice, right? You're, what What are your concerns? I guess the concerns we all have, right? Yeah. Well, uh, my wife and I were fortunate enough to where she's pregnant right now and um, um, in her third trimester. And it's our first child. And and it's really made me um, think differently about the issue, you know, as far as just the impacts that it can potentially have on an unborn child and our kids here in Logan and um, just the ability for them to go out outside to recess and, you know, raising a kid here in, in this type of poor air quality is, is a concern for us. Mm-hmm. And, and the, you know, so I, as a do as my, you know, a good citizen, I contacted all the local public officials and the state officials and the, um, 
the response that I consist, consistently received was that Cache County citizens don't want vehicle emissions testing, and therefore that's why we haven't done it. And I know a lot of people that do want it. So my thought was, let's get everybody together and, and get them to the c- courthouse and let the county officials know we do want it. Mm-hmm. And then you want people to file into the chambers and... I guess pack the right. pack the chambers. That's yeah. what you want. Yeah, well, it's a public hearing as well, mm-hmm. so yeah. the, the county is looking for uh, voices from from uh, from Logan and Cache Valley citizens, and you know, and, and again, they they repeatedly told me that usually they hear that people are opposed to it, and mm-hmm. um, I guess we have to, as citizens that want it, we have to step up and let them know we do want it. Mm-hmm. So you especially come to this uh, out of. Uh, you're seeing this through a father's eyes. Correct. Yep. yep. And you're worried about your your, your child. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And in in um, you know I like to climb mountains. Most people here in Utah like to be outside and climb mountains. And you know having asthma, trying to climb peaks and mountains. Not that he his he may not do that, but if he does, if he has asthma, it's gonna it's gonna be a challenge. And mm-hmm. you know to do any sort of sports, it's a challenge if you have asthma and and, and whatnot. Sharice Udell, uh, back to you. Um, Taking a look at around the state, and there are various areas in the state with a problem. Wasatch Front, of course. Cache Valley has a bad problem out in the Uinta Basin and some other uh, areas. And uh, I wonder if you could uh, maybe give voice to the frustration that a lot of people are feeling, that there's a problem, a growing problem, but not enough seems to be done. Yes. I mean, luckily, um, the silver lining in the horrible air we've had um, this winter, um, that silver lining, I like to see the positive in things. And so we've had horrible air, but on the other hand, has really made people um, stand up and voice their concerns about um, how toxic our air is. And it's put a huge amount of pressure on our elected officials. Um, I've had a number of senators and representatives tell me they're getting inundated with emails, um, phone calls, and handwritten letters. Um, you know, begging them to do something about the air quality problem. So we have a number of, of our elected officials, like Patrice Arendt um, and uh, Joel Briscoe, who are actually being proactive in doing something, but unfortunately they're the minority. And so the drumbeat has to get louder. We have to be beating it louder and more frequently, and this is the time to be doing it. As we go along, I'll be asking my guests, I'll be asking you as well, what, what an ideal state for a solution would be. We, you know, I think there's agreement there's a problem, it's a bad problem. might be a disagreement, as we had in the headlines in the Tribune today, of where the problem's coming from. Of course, that's important, but uh, how do we get to a solution? And uh, I, I want to look for inspiration today, and that's why I bring Mr. Blattman on. We bring him on right now. Um, because I think some people are, uh, I've been seeing some uh, traffic, uh, Facebooking and uh, emailing, hearing about this, of uh, people holding up this success story in San Francisco Bay Area as maybe a path forward for our uh, problem on uh, on air quality. Um, so, Mr. Blattman, uh, maybe you could uh, outline for us the, the problem that existed uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we'll hear a clip from the movie as well. Okay. Well, Tom... The problem that existed at the time the Save the Bay movement was formed, it started in 1961, and the problem really was twofold. There was a pollution problem because of rapid industrialization everywhere, but particularly around the Bay following World War II when there was a tremendous expansion in the region. There was a second problem, which is really what drove the three women in the East Bay Hills to start the Save the Bay movement, and that was also the filling in of the Bay. 
they would look out their windows. They were in the East Bay looking west toward San Francisco on the Golden Gate in the sunset. They would look out their windows, and they would see that the bay was ringed with garbage dumps. And on a daily basis, there would be trucks that would pull up, and the bay would just get smaller and smaller as more and more of the bay was filled in. And the reason the bay was filled in is not only was it easy to dump garbage, but there is a low-lying coastal range that surrounds the bay, coastal mountain range that surrounds the bay, which is why so many of our cities are hilly. And so if you're looking for flat land to develop and there isn't any, the easiest thing to do is to go into a pretty shallow bay and fill it in and create flat land for development. And that's what prompted them to start a movement to protect the bay from being filled in any further, which was successful. And I think why I'm on the program. Let's uh, let's hear a clip from the from the movie. This is sort of setting up the the problem that existed. In this basin are the valleys of two rivers. In the north, the Sacramento. In the south, the Valley of the San Joaquin. As the 20th century began, the watershed of San Francisco Bay, 16 rivers draining into the massive Central Valley before converging at the delta formed by the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers, was undergoing a radical transformation. It would ultimately reduce the amount of fresh water reaching San Francisco Bay by half. In its historical time when it was and the upper parts of the estuary was all tidal freshwater marsh. It would have been this maze of channels with these spectacular, off as far as you could see, these tule marshes, extraordinary tule marshes, where these tules would all grow and die and be incorporated in the, what was then these organic soils, these phenomenal organic-rich soils. When we reclaimed the delta, as we put up levees and drained all these marshes and started growing crops, we exposed those soils to oxygen. When they were low oxygen soils, there was, the organic breakdown was very slow. Once you expose them to oxygen, the organic breakdown is very, very fast. New set of microbes move in. And basically, roughly half of that organic material, which was accumulated over the last 5,000 years, went back into the atmosphere through oxidation. To compensate. There's a, a part of the movie, Saving the Bay, by the way. You can find information at savingthebay.org. By the way, is that Robert Redford? Yes, that is Robert oh, Redford. Oh, you got Robert Redford narrate your movie. Yeah, that's great. He narrated uh, the movie. He was great to work with, <laughs> and he was, it, was, it really turned out well. Yeah, and uh, this, this got huge ratings uh, when it aired on PBS, and it's been repeated several times. That's when I caught it, when it on, a, on a repeat. I think perhaps because of the hope that it... Uh, that it gives. Uh, but uh, let's uh, concentrate uh, first on the problem. I think the jeopardy was that the, the, the bay was being filled in and filled in in part because, you know, real estate was being reclaimed here. Uh, the jeopardy was this would just turn into a river, right? No, no bay left. That's right. And what prompted the movement, what prompted these three women besides what they saw out their windows really was an Oakland Tribune story that ran that showed a picture. The Army Corps of Engineers in 1959 had done a study that projected forward what the bay might, might look like in the year 2020. And if people continued filling in the bay as to the amount that they were legally allowed to, the bay literally would have been a river, and that was the graphic that was on the front page of the Oakland Tribune. 
This doesn't mean, just so it's clear, it doesn't mean that there were plans right at that time to fill it in to that extent, but legally you could. And since filling was going on all around, one could make a, re, a sort of a logical projection that 30 years from now, 40 years from that time, 50 years from that time, the bay would actually be reduced to nothing more than a river. Hmm. Now, what was the pushback? Pushback from real estate development uh, and, and what else? Pushback from real estate development, also pushback from industrial users that ring the bay. Mm, okay. The bay is, as many people know, it's a fantastic recreation area. It's a huge draw for tourists. We also have five oil refineries on the bay, and at the time, there was a lot more heavy industry concentrated, mostly in the East Bay, mostly toward the north. And um, economy, were, were, were there dire economic predictions if we, you know, if some of these solutions were implemented and you lost some of this land in the Bay? I think there were arguments about that there would be, you know, the idea that you don't want to get government. It's the same kind of things one hears today, which is you don't want to get government involved. People are going to start, you know, putting regulations and it's going to, it's going to hurt the economy, but it's also an interference with the kind of, you know, the Adam Smith invisible hand kind of guidance that it's just, you know, unfettered sort of growth and development and anything else was standing in the way of what was then termed progress. If you just joined us, we're talking about air quality. It's with a twist today. We're trying to look for inspiration and lessons from the San Francisco Bay Area, a community which solved its seemingly intractable environmental problem. Uh, I think uh, we're Many of us are frustrated by the uh, lack of uh, progress on our air pollution problem, but uh, some progress being made, and uh, we're trying to learn lessons here. We're talking with Ron Blattman, producer of Saving the Bay. That's uh, a, a documentary film you may have caught on uh, PBS. We'll get into the story of the three women who spearheaded the uh, successful grassroots movement here. We're also talking with uh, Mark Blazer, executive director of Bear River Watershed Council, and Cherise Udell, founder of Utah Moms for Clean Air. We're going to be bringing in, in the next segment, Amy Odom, uh, associate professor of psychology at Utah State University. We're opening the phone lines now for you, and uh, I want to uh, get the scope of the problem from you and maybe what you think are some of the solutions are. Are you suffering from ill effects from air pollution? Are you worried about your children? What are you instructing them to do or not to do? Do you worry about getting sick? Uh, maybe on the other side, do you worry about economic uh, effects or job loss from overreaction to uh, air pollution problem? The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Sharice uh, Udell, uh, having listened to uh, some of the problems as outlined there, and we know the rest of the story there, the, the bay was saved, and of course that's your... That's your aim uh, to get mm-hmm. to get good air. <laughs> um, I wonder if some of that sounds familiar. I'm, you know, the 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 pushback from uh, industry, pushback uh, some from governments, and the importance of getting this out in the press. Yeah, I definitely see a parallel um, with this story, and I'm actually so glad that you brought um, the Save the Bay story on today because it is inspirational. Because it can get very overwhelming um, when you feel like. You're hitting your head against the wall so often. Um, even though we do see progress, um, it's not fast enough. So it's this is a great inspirational story, personally, for me to be hearing right now. And uh, I wonder, uh, I was just thinking, I was hearing those that clip, um, that it took a while, and we'll, we'll hear the, the efforts of these three women in the grassroots movement, but uh, with regard to air pollution, we're a, a step ahead, aren't we? Especially with this especially bad winter. Because a lot of people are very aware and very frustrated about the problem. That's, I guess, where it has to start. 
Well, yes. Um, I mean, I think the Utah Physicians for a Healthy Environment and Utah Moms for Clean Air have um, have been very vocal about the issue for the past six years, and we're really seeing the impact of of us being so vocal. Is that you know, it's part of uh, the kitchen table conversation now in many families. Um, I I go to the grocery store or I'm at school dropping off kids and I hear the conversations constantly. Um, And I, you know, I overhear people talking about, oh, I'm thinking about moving because this air is so bad. Um, So I just hear a lot of chatter out there in the public. And and then you look at the media coverage and um, we're having actually extraordinary media coverage on the subject nationally and locally. So I know that we are reaching, you know, we're getting up to that tipping point. I don't think we've quite reached it yet, but but it's, you know, things are tipping into our favor. And as we go along and we hear more lessons from Saving the Bay, I'm going to ask you uh, what that tipping point will look like. Uh, Mark Blazer, I wonder if you're hearing some of the same comments, um, that people want to move away, they're worried about it. Yes, I absolutely am. And I would say that that's one of the economic impacts of bad air air quality. I think the that there's some great um, economists here at USU that are doing great work as far as showing the the harmful economic impacts of you know society as a whole paying for the pollution of just say a handful of people and by not um, you know that's a, they call it an externality that that we as a society are paying for and it's sort of the tragedy of the commons and it, all in society are paying for just what a handful of people are doing to, to pollute and and I think as a society it's time for us to say that's enough you know the, we should we need to control this, and, and it's better for society as a whole. Handful of people? Are you talking about industry? Well, uh, when you look at vehicle emissions, you know, um, I forget the statistics, so I'm not going to say it, but it's it's a, a small amount of cars that, that produce a lot of the uh, majority of the, the harmful pollution. So by vehicle emissions testing, we, that's one piece of the puzzle that we can implement and, and, and regulate that. This that element. And mm-hmm. looking at it, it, it is a, uh, it's obviously a, uh, an issue that is – Various and there's there's a lot of different factors involved. Mm. Actually, can I uh, pipe in here? Yeah, for a yes, um, yes. Go ahead. Yeah. So Utah Moms for Clean Air. Um, you know, we we've been looking at all these like these uh, tinkering with the air quality problem, and um, and so we've actually have stepped back, and we're actually right now working on a proposal that is called an Airshed User Fee Program. And so the essence of it is, is um, we want to see the six criteria pollutants being taxed. Um, call it a fee, call it a tax, call it whatever you want. But the point is, if you have to actually pay um, for the cost of your pollution that currently is being externalized, and you actually have to internalize that cost, then people are going to stop treating the airshed like a public sewer. So we're actually proposing this very big-picture fix. Now, whether there's the political will to move forward with this right now, um, you know, I would say it's probably unlikely. But we're going to start pushing that because ultimately I think um, that is the direction we need to go. Um, It's a free market solution, and it also allows um, the economy and people's behavior to recalibrate without a lot of government intervention. So it's like, well, if you're going to – if you're going to – um, buy that really dirty, nasty snowblower, or continue to drive, <clears throat> excuse me, a highly polluting car, then you're going to have to pay for that because you are using the airshed um, maybe more than you should be. And so, if you start to put in these airshed user fees, um, which in a sense, in part, is sort of what a vehicle emissions test does. Um, then I think that naturally the economy will recalibrate into a low-polluting or non-polluting economy. 
We are going to continue this discussion. Some interesting uh, ideas and solutions put forward there by Sharice Udell, founder of Utah Moms for Clean Air. We're also talking with Mark Blazer, who's active director at Bear River Watershed Council. We're going to be bringing in Amy Odom, associate professor of psychology at USU, and we're spending the hour with Ron Blattman, producer of Saving the Bay. And that's uh, the story, a, gr- a grassroots success story of a community which uh, solved its uh, environmental problem in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. We're going to hear more clips from the documentary and uh, talk about some lessons here as we go forward after a brief break. On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Waste not. Studies show leaking faucets and toilets account for as much as 14% of all indoor water use. That's 10 gallons per person per day. By replacing an old toilet with a new model, the typical household can save up to 21,000 gallons of water per year. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Breathing the same air, and there's growing frustration. In fact, we're hearing some people want to move away from uh, Utah because of the the bad air. It's been an especially bad winter, but uh, perhaps this is harbinger of things to come. Uh, A lot of people uh, looking for solutions, frustration out there, and there's going to be a rally. Uh, This afternoon starts at 4.30 at the Cache County Historic uh, Courthouse. It's for clean air, and uh, then... uh, Utah Moms for Clean Air and uh, Mark Blazer and uh, some people in the community in Cache County want you to go into the uh, council chambers and demand a yes vote on vehicle emissions testing for Cache Valley. We we believe a vote is coming on that from the Cache County Council uh, this evening. Uh, So we're talking about the problem and we're framing this uh, as learning lessons from a successful grassroots effort in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's why we have uh, Ron Blattman, producer of Saving the Bay, documentary film. Uh, with us. We welcome in uh, Amy Odom, Associate Professor of Psychology at USU. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, appreciate you uh, joining us. We're going to be talking about behavior modification, which is a part of this as we as we go forward. Uh, let's hear another clip from the movie. This is uh, Saving the Bay. And uh, this, I think, is the beginnings of this grassroots movement, the, the three women involved. It was 1961, and I had a call from somebody who identified herself as Catherine Kerr, whom, whom I didn't know. 
She added uh, Mrs. Clark Kerr, and immediately I snapped to attention because he was president of the university. And she said the bay is gradually being filled. It's disappearing. We want to get the conservationists. There was no such word as environmentalist at that time. We want to get the conservationists going on this to save the bay. So we're calling a meeting of Bay Area conservationists to find out what can be done about this situation. So I went up there that night in January, and most of the people there I knew already. There was Dave Brower from the Sierra Club. There was, as I recall, Newton Drury from the Save the Redwoods League. Uh, there were people from Audubon and uh, Nature Conservancy. And, and Kay presented this case about the filling of the bay and asking, what are you going to do about it? No one could have recognized it that night. But the conservation movement, with its roots back to John Muir, had arrived at a crossroads. Until now, the focus was primarily protecting wilderness and wildlife. Here now was a plea for an urban landscape. The movement's very notion of sacred and profane was being stretched. They all agreed that it was important to do something about the bay. They recognized the problems that we told them about, but they said they were all too busy. In the hills above the bay, Kay Kerr, Esther Gulick, and Sylvia McLaughlin went to work. We determined to go ahead and start an organization and to uh, stop the filling. We started wherever our friends were. We <laughs> used every list that we could think of. Uh, university lists, church lists, uh, club lists. In January 1961, the makeshift trio, now calling themselves the Save San Francisco Bay Association, sent out their first letter. The letterhead stated the new organization's five simple objectives, and, thanks to the women's connections through their husbands at the University of California, presented a who's who list of prominent, instantly recognizable supporters. Included with it was the map of the shrinking bay. We just used that from then on uh, on our literature that uh, we entitled it Bay or River, and people were just really shocked by that, I think. And, and so we sent that out with our first uh, invitation to join our fledgling organization. And they had what at the time was a radical organizing principle. We're going to volunteer our time as leaders, and we're going to ask people for a dollar, one dollar, so that we can afford to mail them information. And what we really want is not their money, we want their voices, we want their names, we want to be able to invoke a large group of people in support of our goals. In March 1961, just two months after the meeting at Grizzly Peak, the Berkeley City Council found its chambers suddenly packed one night with a crowd of citizens, opposed to the master plan for Phil. The Save San Francisco Bay Association had emerged onto the political scene. Well, there, uh, there's a good parallel to today. You're <laughs> Sherry Sudell and uh, Mark Blazer. You're asking people to go and pack the uh, county council uh, chambers. Um, and uh, I wonder, uh, some of the, maybe you could tell us, fill out this uh, story for us, Mr. Blattman. Uh, this started with three women. It started with three women. And they literally organized, you know, this is in the days before social media. So it's kind of, in a sense, you do it the old-fashioned way. They had coffee clatches, and they baked cookies, and they would have people over to their houses. And they were, as you heard from the film clip or heard in the film clip, 
they were interested really in building as broad a base with numbers just of regular citizens as possible. And then, of course, it didn't hurt that, especially with Kay Kerr, whose husband was the head of the University of California system, and Sylvie McLaughlin, whose husband was the ironically the chairman of the Homestake Mining Company at the time, that these women had connections socially, and they sort of parlayed that into eventually putting pressure on some high-level politicians and then enlisting a handful of people in the media and a handful of people in the political world to help carry the message, very similar to what I hear is going on in Utah right now. Then how did it, how did it grow? Because there were powerful forces on the other side. It grew because I think people just the way, you know, I think people are reacting to the problem of the air in Utah in which it sort of it affects, and that's an, it's almost in a sense that's even more of a direct one-to-one impact on citizens, but I think it's that people saw what the effect was on them, and it sounded like, you know, it was a very simple idea. It, it wasn't sort of, it didn't take rocket science to figure out, we have a beautiful bay, we have a beautiful resource, and it's disappearing before our eyes, we should do something to protect it. It was a very sort of simple clear, clean message that was easy to understand by people. And I think people reacted to that. So they they eventually got a lot of support in the East Bay. And then some of what helped turn the tide were a couple of things, which we illustrate in the film. And in, the, in those days in San Francisco, there was one disc jockey that had a 25% market share on KSFO, an AM radio station. And he was enormously popular. And he was usually apolitical, but he picked up the Save the Bay charge and he would be on the radio during his radio show. He would slip in comments about people need to go and get organized and people need to show up to rallies and people need to send in letters. Look. And eventually that pressure that came from all these things, both in the media and just this, you know, just like I hear in Utah, people are writing letters or staging rallies or being organized, is that you keep the pressure up, you keep the pressure up until eventually they garnered the support of a gentleman by the name of Eugene McAteer, who was a San Francisco-based state senator, and he was widely expected to eventually become mayor in San Francisco, and he was also the most powerful guy in the state Senate. And once McAteer got on board, things began to move much more, you know, much more easily in Sacramento, but it wasn't easy because the governor at the time, Pat Brown, who was Jerry Brown's father, was against this. But eventually they prevailed in a, in a series, you know, because they were able to show that the popular support going forward was with them. And I think that's when politicians, despite the opposition from real estate groups and industry and other business groups and and just people who didn't want to have, quote-unquote, government intrude in their lives, I think that they saw looking out to the future that that's the way things were were headed and they wanted to be on the right side of history. We'll we'll pursue that strain because I, I I think one question I want to pursue is that grassroots movement is necessary, but is it sufficient? And I, um, you, you know, it, it's going to involve some some government uh, support. Let me turn to Amy Odom now, a professor of psychology at USU. Uh, it's interesting to hear this experience from the Bay, uh, and uh, bring that forward to the air quality pr- problem we have here. And this theme that we've been having on the program today, we're all breathing the same air, but we each have different reaction to it. And there seems to be a disconnect. Uh, some people don't seem to be affected emotionally by this. So don't you know? Maybe care a little bit, but not enough mm-hmm. to to want to do something in their personal lives or get involved politically or, or whatever. Um, I wonder if you talked to that a little bit. Sure. Um, I think you know, as a basic psychologist. Um, 
there are a lot of relevant issues that come into play here, why it's so difficult for people to sometimes act in their long-term best interests. So one thing is that the, the consequences of all of this for many of us are delayed. For some of us, they're quite immediate. Some people who are more sensitive, maybe like smaller children or older people, you know, our parents and grandparents who have more difficulty breathing, those types of effects would show up more sooner. But for people who are pretty healthy, those things are going to be fairly delayed. And what we know from basic studies in psychology is that um, delayed consequences are really difficult to get those to impact behavior. And so um, one of the best examples, I think, from addiction, and this is fortunately not a problem that a lot of Utahns face, but some do, is cigarette smoking. And one of the things that's so hard to understand if you don't smoke cigarettes is why anyone would, because you think, well, it's just really terrible for you. But those terrible things are delayed. And so in a way, it's kind of the air quality problems we have, even though there's some differences, there's some similarities. It's kind of like we're all smoking cigarettes and we're all doing things that make it like we're smoking cigarettes. Um, but yet it's hard for us to see that because it's sort of a diffuse, delayed impact on us. Mm. And it, it occurs to me where, as you, as you make that, that good analogy, uh, we're all in a you know we're all a tight knit community maybe more tight knit now because we're breathing this hell breathing this bad air concerned about it but maybe it's sort of a forced tight knit community in this case and there is disagreement on how to proceed obviously right right and i think that that's because there are a lot of people have a lot of um different reasons why they might be contributing to air quality you know maybe it's a person who's going grocery shopping or maybe it's part of someone's livelihood <clears throat> The way that they, excuse me. We'll, uh, we'll have uh, Professor Odom take a, a sip of water here. <clears throat> Maybe it's the way that they earn their livelihood, you know, the equipment they use or something like that on their farm. Um, there are a lot of different reasons why we all, or maybe it's an industry, a larger industry. And so we're all contributing, um, but to different degrees. And maybe we all think that our particular part of that is not significant. And, you know, your guest earlier referred to the tragedy of the commons. And so that's another another issue that is at work here is that each of us is contributing in a fairly small way sometimes, some of us more than others. Um, and so it's hard for any one person to, to recognize their impact on the situation. But sort of the great flip side of that is that if all of us are contributing just a small amount to the problem, but there are a lot of us, if we all turn around and make a small change, that can, if all of us do it, it can have a big impact. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to take another brief break, and when we come back, we'll get to comments from Sheree Shudell and Mark Blazer on, on this, uh, how, how we solve that disconnect and what uh, you would like to see the solution be uh, back after this break. Did you know that despite their inherent challenges, remarriages can be rewarding? Studies of remarried couples suggest effective communication, financial, parenting, and conflict management strategies can facilitate satisfying and enduring relationships. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. 
Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Air pollution is the problem. We're looking for solutions, and we're looking for inspiration and lessons from a community which solved their environmental problem. That's the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, the bay was in jeopardy. In fact, if the fill had continued, uh, there would be no bay. There'd just be a river emptying into the ocean. And uh, we are talking with the producer of uh, that movie and uh, getting some lessons from Saving the Bay. SavingTheBay.org is the place to go. Ron Blattman is the producer. We're also talking with Amy Odom. You just heard from her prior to the break, professor of psychology at USU. And uh, Sharice Udell, founder of Utah Moms for Clean Air, and Mark Blazer, executive director of Bear River Watershed Council. By the way, there is a rally planned for 4.30 this afternoon at the uh, Cache County Historic Courthouse. That's prior to the expected vote on uh, emissions testing from the Cache County Council, 4.30 at the Cache County uh, courthouse and uh, citizens in uh, Cache County, assisted by Utah Moms for Clean Air, are uh, pr- promoting that. By the way, you have the opportunity. I neglected to do this, but I want to give you this opportunity. Owen is your call at 1 800 826 1495 or your uh, email, I suppose. Just give us uh, some information. You'd have to pick these uh, tickets up, but we have two two day passes to. Uh, the uh, Cache Valley Cowboy Rendezvous. So if you're into cowboys, uh, you can celebrate Utah's Cowboys. That's March 1st through the 3rd at Mountain Crest High School. You get a two-day pass. Bren Hill is in concert. He's the headliner. Uh, two-day pass for two, and we've got two of those. So just uh, call 1-800-826-1495 to, uh, to pick those up. Sharice uh, Udell, I wonder, as you were listening to the clip from the movie there, these uh, women... Uh, who spearheaded this movement, and then it grew, and it was ultimately successful. I wonder what lessons you're picking up from this. Well, I'm thinking we need to uh, host a uh, screening of Save the Bay here in Utah to get um, our citizens here motivated uh, to see that the end goal of clean air is possible, because um, what was accomplished in the Bay Area with the Save the Bay is quite extraordinary. And I would say that anyone that looks back now would think how foolish if they had not done that. If the government hadn't gotten behind them, if citizens hadn't gotten behind that movement, and if the San Francisco Bay was now a a thin little river going through underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, um, we can look back with hindsight and say what a tragedy um, that would have been. And so we can maybe get inspiration from that and look like if we don't move now on Utah's air quality, we're going to be a chronic day-in and day-out Los Angeles-type situation Mm. here in Utah. And I'm, I'm sure if you talk to Mr. Blattman, you can probably arrange a screening. Mr. Yes, I would love to have him come and speak. <laughs> yeah. uh, Mr. Blattman, the, the uh, invitation's out there for you. Okay. No, I'd, yeah. it would sounds like I'd, I'd welcome that. So oh. we should talk after this is oh, okay, great, great. on the radio. Let me just add one more thing, just because you guys had mentioned with regard to air quality, you talk about emissions testing, is maybe your listeners should know that as long as I can remember, and I don't know how long it's been, but as long as I can remember, California has had emissions testing for cars. Yes, yes. It, um, it, and the, But there's been some foot dragging on this, right, uh, Ms. Udell? Oh, yes. Um, we have emissions testing here in um, um, in Salt Lake. I mean, there there are areas in Utah that do have emissions testing, so Utah is not that much in the Stone Age on this subject. Um, really, it should be statewide. And I think for the Logan area, which is um, where the rally is being held today, I think that even needs to um, extend to um, off-road 
um, and um, agricultural equipment because their primary problem in that valley are vehicular emissions. And so if they're really going to deal with their problem there, um, they're going to have to deal with, you know, vehicle output. And then their other problem is, of course, agricultural pollution. And uh, Mr. Blazer, I think as you talked to some government officials, they were telling you that people in in the valley don't want emissions testing. I guess what I would say is that staying on the theme of positive, um, there is a positive message here, and that that's <clears throat> that we can do something about our our air quality. It's not, we don't have to we don't have to suffer through winters like this, and we can solve it. And what we need is um, the solutions are there. We just need leadership and action from our our political leaders and our public officials. And you know, I guess I would challenge them that you know I argue that our number one priority in society should be to protect the the public health and the health and safety of our kids. And um, you know, I challenge our political leaders if, to, to look in the eyes, eyes of a child here in Cache Valley and say, yes, I'm doing enough to protect your health. And I don't think they can do that right now. And I think that's what we should strive for. Mm. Again, the rally is at the Cache County uh, Historic Courthouse, 430 uh, this afternoon. We do have a couple of callers. We want to bring in Leslie from Logan. Leslie, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to encourage people in Logan to stop idling their cars as much as possible in drive-throughs, in banks, uh, even on the on the roads. I see people stopping along the side of the road to talk on their cell phones, to pick up their children from school. If everybody stopped idling at times like that, we could make a small difference, but we could make some difference. I don't know what it takes to change that behavior in people, but um, to me that would be the one thing, the small thing, that we can do as an individual to change that behavior. So I plead with the people in Logan to stop idling their cars and to make better traffic flow for the, uh, the city to coordinate lights on the, on the roads. So thank you for taking my call. Thank you, Leslie. Appreciate that. And, uh, well, we have someone who can talk about changing behavior. Professor Odom, what, what do you have to say to that? Leslie's point is a great one, that idling is one of those small changes um, that we could all make. And idling is when um, you're in your car and the engine's on, but you're not driving it somewhere. And I think that, you know, for most of us, this is something we've grown up doing without thinking about it. Um, And it is inconvenient to turn off your engine and turn it back on. And you might think, well, I might use just as much gas or make just as much problem if I do that. But in fact, if you turn it off for a little bit, you know, it will be better for all of us. And and I've realized doing that, that your car doesn't get as cold as you think it will. It's actually, you know, fairly well insulated. You're usually dressed for the outside anyway when you're traveling in your car when it's cold. And so it's really one of those small changes that you can feel better about. So it's just like you wouldn't, you know, in the old days, pe- more people used to smoke cigarettes, and they used to smoke inside, and they used to smoke in their cars and around children and older people, and, and you don't see people doing that today. Mm-hmm. And I think if you kind of think about it in those same terms, you know, you wouldn't idle your car either because you know that it would, even though it's a little inconvenient to turn it off and on, it's having a bad health impact. And it's that one little thing that you can control and feel like that you're contributing to the solution. Mm. Let's go to our next caller. Can I add in about Utah Moms? Yes, yes, go go, go ahead. Sorry, it's hard Mm -hmm. not having social cues because I'm on the phone. (laughs) Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) Um, 
I was going to say that, um, yeah, Utah Moms for Cleaner realized, um, you know, a few years ago when we started that what this is all about is changing social norms and um, with the idling specifically. So remember when we had the Don't Be a Litter Bug campaign? I remember as a child, mm-hmm. people would throw their trash out the window on the freeway, and it was considered socially acceptable. That is absolutely considered socially unacceptable now. And you'd be most people would be fully ashamed to be caught throwing trash out their window. So mm-hmm. what I want to see is a social norm change also about idling, that it's embarrassing. It's a social embarrassment to be caught idling because it's seen as rude and selfish. And, um, and then also it's seen as kind of stupid because um, idling, one hour of idling gets zero miles per gallon, and it um, also one hour of idling equals one gallon of gasoline, which is, what, 3 to $4 a gallon. And if you look at 52 hours of idling a year, if you idle just one hour a week, that's $150 you've thrown away. So it's stupid, it's wasteful, and you could also say it's morally um, questionable that you would just selfishly um, idle your car when you know that it causes harm. Now, I do want to point out that a lot of people actually don't realize that. So, you know, I always try to be very gentle with the message because before I started Utah Moms for Clean Air, I idled my car. I didn't even think about it. So when you start to point those things out, um, then you can start to change social norms. Let's go to our next caller, uh, Martha in Springdale. Welcome to the program, Martha. Thank you. It's Marcia. Oh, Marcia. Sorry about that. No problem. Couldn't but, read my um, own writing. Like- okay. I was relating to the young man who um, said that some people in Salt Lake are thinking about moving away. And when our son was born in 1982, we then were living at Snowbird, and we saw the smog creeping up Little Cottonwood Canyon. And we did indeed move that following spring in 83 to um, up to the northwest for 20 years. And then we've moved back here to see that the problem really hasn't alleviated itself and it indeed has gotten much bigger that's mm. all i wanted to say and mm. I, okay. I really yeah um recently my daughter wanted to get an admissions check in st george and there is no such thing here you have to go up to salt lake city or four hours north to in, get an admissions check so for your car so she, I, she wanted to do it just to be a good citizen kind of a thing? No, she wanted to get her car inspected. Oh, okay. She needed mm-hmm. an emissions check, and there is no such thing. Couldn't do it in St. George. Yeah. In St. George, so she had to go up up north. So I hope, Logan, good luck at the rally tonight. Yeah, yeah the, the vote is tonight, so the rally is at 430. Thank you, Marcia. Thank appreciate you very that. much. I want to turn to uh, Ron Blattman. Um, we're talking about uh, changing social norms, and of course that's important. But I wonder, if taking the lesson from Saving the Bay, at least my view of it is um, the, the awareness, the grassroots movement was important. It was necessary, but it was not sufficient. Government had to get involved. And, I, uh, where, and, and uh, Sharice Udell talked earlier about an ambitious plan for an airshed user fee. Um, but, but there has to be political will, and she's thinking maybe there's not right now. How did they get to the political will in, in this instance in the Saving the Bay? Because the, the solution was uh, pretty, it was a pretty ambitious solution. It wound up being a very ambitious solution, but before I get to that, I think what one has to do, and I think that's what it sounds like is at least been going on in Utah, is you can't give up. You have to be tenacious, and after you hold a rally and another rally, even if the vote doesn't go your way, you keep at it, especially if, you know, at least I'm sitting here in San Francisco, at least 
from a you know San Franciscan viewpoint, everything that's being you know talked about right now for these things in Utah are kind of in California are things that are already you know part of the accepted norm. You know the way you were describing, for example, that people don't smoke cigarettes anymore. This thing about emissions testing, or I mean, there's plenty of people who idle here, but you know it's. I think there's a lot more awareness out here because of the amount of attention these kinds of issues have gotten through the years, and you just have to keep the pressure up. The other thing is, is the media, and today, of course, there's social media, which didn't exist back then, but the media is absolutely critical. I mean, there was a reference that in one of the Salt Lake City papers today, it's on the front page about the clean air issue, and that's what needs to happen. And what really needs to happen is that people who are leaders in the media, it doesn't need to be all of them, it just needs to be a handful. You know, you need to have people who kind of say, yes, this is something we believe in, and they make a commitment so that this kind of a story is out front. You know, if there was a TV station or a key TV reporter or, or a newspaper or newspaper reporters for whom this is something that rather than they ran the story once, okay, been there, done that, and it's over, that it keeps coming back. It comes back, and it doesn't come back in a nasty way, but it just comes back in an exploratory way, in the way people explain what's going on. It's what these three women did in terms of over time building a movement that, you know, they started in 1961. It wasn't until 1965 at the California State Legislature, four years later, that there was a temporary state agency that was created to regulate filling in the Bay, which was not made permanent until 1969. Hmm. And uh, if you could talk just very briefly about the solution, this was a uh, a Bay-wide solution. It has to be bigger than one community, right? It has to be, and especially if we talk about air, which goes from one place to the other. The issue in San Francisco Bay was is that there are literally dozens of different independent cities and towns that front the bay, multiple counties that front the bay, and each one had its own prescription for what it was going to do with the bay. You know, one city could be 100% in favor of protecting everything. The next city could sit there and say, we're going to, you know, put some sort of a factory right on the bay. The next city could say we want to fill in the bay, and the next city could say we want to have it as trails and and fishing for people on the bay. There was no coordination, and people often, or cities and communities were often at odds with each other. So the idea was that they had to go big. And what they did is they basically leapfrogged not just the cities and the counties, but they went ultimately to the state legislature in Sacramento. And what wound up resulting was the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission, known here as BCDC, which was amazingly the world's first coastal management agency. So when people hear about the Chesapeake Bay Commission or they hear about all kinds of other things, this was all rooted in what started here with these three women in the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, which is a state agency that was set up specifically to regulate filling and developing and all activity that takes place both in the bay and on the shoreline that rings the bay. Let me uh, turn, we're running out of time in the program, but very briefly to Mark Blazer. Uh, the, the rally today, what do you, what do you hope ha- happens? Obviously, you want a, a yes vote on emissions testing. Right, yeah, and, and Tom, this is a, I've never been a part of a rally before, so mm-hmm. this is the first time you know, I've ever, ever done this. And you know, just, I, th- I think differently now as a, as a, a new father here in, in a couple months. And, and so 
what, you know, again, what the county officials and the state officials have told me is that Cache Valley citizens don't want vehicle emissions testing, and that's why they haven't passed it yet. So by filling the courthouse, and, and there is a public hearing on this, so if, if, there are, if the courthouse is filled with people who say, yes, enough stalling, we want action, pass vehicle emissions testing now, then they'll probably do it. So that's, that's the, the message that I received from our political leaders is they, they need to hear from us to tell them, yes, we want it. So 4.30 is the rally, and then 5 o'clock the, the, the public uh, meeting, the county meeting starts. And if we're all there and we all tell them and they all know it, that we want it, then hopefully they'll pass it. And Cherise Udell, briefly, what, what are the next steps for, for your organization? Well, um, we're actually having a meeting with Governor Herbert tomorrow, um, and we are putting forth um, a uh, document that we have um, worked on called the Citizen's Path to Cleaner Air in Utah. Um, and basically, it will have two options. Option A is tax the six criteria pollutants with this airshed user fee um, and um, in some ways be done with it, right? I mean, obviously, that takes a lot of implementation and it will take monitoring, et cetera. But in some ways, it's just like, okay, let's just put a flat tax on everything that pollutes, whether it's the mining industry, a snowblower, um, or your car. Um, so that's one option. And frankly, I think that's the um, fairest and um, in many ways simplest option. And the other option we're presenting is then a long list of um, government regulations that are needed. And so Governor Herbert hopefully will look at those. And um, um, I would love it if he would take option A, which is just to start um, looking at an airshed user fee that could be um, you know, implemented over a 10-year period. Um, that's highly unlikely considering um, his response this far. But we're putting it out there, you know, starting the conversation. And, um, and then we're also going to send that to the EPA and to um, the Obama administration because I think that it needs to be done nationwide, that if we are actually to um, tax these six pollutants, um, and that's not even getting into carbon, actually. It's just the six criteria pollutants, um, like ozone, PM2.5, um, NOx, and SOx, um, that we would, the economy would naturally recalibrate. Um, and we will also find that actually um, cleaning up our air pollution um, will actually create more jobs because if you just think about it logically, and, um, and we'll have Leo to. Uh, I'm sorry, we'll have to. We'll have to. Uh, le- we'll have to leave it there because we're out of time. Oh, sorry, sorry, about, sorry about that. Sharice okay. <laughs> um, Udell, Utah Moms for Clean Air. Uh, Mark Blazer, Executive Director of the Bear River Watershed Council, have been with us also in studio. Amy Odom, Professor of Psychology at USU. Thank you to all of you. Ron Blattman, producer of Saving the Bay, the story we've been taking inspiration from. Uh, by the way, put in a plug for Saving the City, and I think you can find information uh, raising money for that project. Ron Blattman, SavingTheCity.org. Thanks to uh, everyone, and uh, tune in tomorrow for some great Brazilian music on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Tom. This is KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.